you got your Bible with you or you'd like to use one in the back of the pew, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis this morning, Genesis chapter 11. We are going to be reading and studying a foundational passage in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. You may know it as the Tower of Babel, but this morning we will be considering God's war on pride. I had planned to preach this message, I think, in the summer, but then my family got COVID, and I've been saving it in my back pocket for the next time I needed something to fill in the gap when it fell on this Sunday. So I'm praying God will use it to speak to us in our pride and point to the humility of Christ, and the life that we can have in him. With all that in mind, we're going to read Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. This is the word of the Lord. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. There are some fights that you do not want to start. You don't want to go there. It's not going to be good for you. My kids learned this one night when they decided they wanted to test me at Monopoly. I have pictures to show you the night of tears they spent singing their songs of lament as I whooped their tails in Monopoly. I got every piece of property and all the money, and they're just sitting there crying. Because, friend, listen, in my house, you don't want to start a fight and try me at Monopoly. You do not want to ask my wife or fight her about what's for dinner. My little six-year-old knows. She'll tell you, you don't mess with mama. There's an old song. You don't pull on Superman's cape. You don't spit in the wind. You don't take the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Slim. There are some fights that you just don't want to fight. If I just took you back to your childhood, you're welcome. But if you take it to warfare, there are some fights that you just don't want to fight. 
in the 19th century, Napoleon had all of his pride and ego tested as he learned you don't want to go to Moscow in winter. You might be able to take out all of Europe, but if you go to Siberia in the, mental, in the middle of January and February, Russia's going to take you out. Because there's some fights that you don't want to fight. Now, why do we try? Why do my kids think they can take me at Monopoly? Why does Napoleon think he can take Russia in the middle of winter? Pride. And in Genesis 11, we find out that pride is a fight we don't want to fight. This isn't the only place you see it in the Bible. You may have heard of this giant named Goliath who came onto the scene saying he could take anybody and he, he could take all of God's military, all of God's armies out because he was so big and so bad. And what happens? Little shepherd boy takes him out. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon gets to the top of his palace and looks out at all the land, kind of like Mufasa and Simba, saying, I own all of it. And then what happens? He gets driven mad and he runs out the palace barking like a dog. The Pharisees in the New Testament had built themselves up so high because they were so righteous and can follow all the laws. And then this humble carpenter teacher, Jesus, says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Friend, this is a fight you do not want to fight. God wages war on our pride for the glory of his name. If you test him with your tower and your abilities and your name and think that you are going to build something for yourself and be better than him or be self-sufficient, be good enough, you don't need anybody, that you can make it on your own, that is a fight you don't want to fight. God wages war on that mentality. I want to walk through this passage and show you what that can look like as a warning to us that we won't go the same way the people of Babel did. Three phases of war in the war on pride. The first, man declares war on God. This comes from humanity. They're, they're the ones who instigate this. Look at verses 1 to 4. Moses writes, Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you're, going to, if you're going to understand any kind of war, you got to know a little bit of history. Now, if you don't like history in school, I'm sorry, but that's just the facts. If you want to know anything about the Revolutionary War, you got to understand colonial America and their relationship with England. you got to know some facts to get the battle. Well, if we're going to understand this battle, we got to understand the history, too. Genesis 11 doesn't happen in a vacuum. In Genesis 1 to 9, we see the standing orders for humanity. In the garden, God tells Adam his mission. He says, be fruitful and multiply. 
tells Eve, I want you to populate this earth. Do not eat from this tree, but be fruitful and multiply. And what does Adam do? In his pride, he thinks he knows better, and he eats from that tree. And so God wages war and removes him from the garden, but the mission still stands. After God gives them clothes and and gives them grace, he tells them again, repeats the command, be fruitful and multiply. The, The order still stands. By the time you get to Genesis 6, Adam's family has multiplied greatly, but so has sin. And so God, you know this story, responds to the sin he sees on the world with a worldwide flood. He wages war on the pride of man and their sinfulness, but he gives grace and he saves Noah and his family. And when they get out of the boat, guess what he tells them? Genesis 9, verse 1, same mission. He tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right, so we understand the operating orders right now for humanity, right? Have babies, populate the earth, be fruitful and multiply, spread out. Let's fill this thing up. When verses 1 to 2, you get the first hint of trouble. Moses tells us that the whole earth had one language and the same words. They had found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. You might think that that sounds pretty great. Everybody speaks the same language. It's real easy to communicate. Everybody's in the same town. What's the big deal? The order. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. The mission of God, catch this, requires movement. The the orders from God requires you to go. But in verse 2, the movement stops. Now, does does this sound familiar at all? Anybody? What's God called us to do? Mission. Go. And what's the temptation? Settle. Build. Big buildings. Plant. Don't go anywhere. Get rich. It's the mission. But it keeps going further. Verses 3 to 4, you see an actual attack on God. Look at verses 3 to 4. What are they saying? People say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves less, unless we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, the key phrase in there is when they say, let us build a tower. I got to do a little background work. This is a specific kind of tower. It's a fun word to say. Kids, if you want to impress your parents, you remember this word and tell them at lunch, okay? The kind of tower that they built is a ziggurat. Y'all want to say that? Ziggurat. Somebody? Nobody. Okay. Say it at lunch. Ziggurat. Now, what's a ziggurat? It looks like a pyramid, but it's empty on the inside. And the main function, the main, the main feature of this ziggurat, this tower that looks like a pyramid, is a staircase that goes up. Now, the function of the staircase in the ziggurat, listen, is to connect earth to heaven. It was a spiritual staircase that would allow people who ascended it to climb the spiritual steps to the 
heavens. And so, friends, this is not just a tower. As one writer writes, this is an invasion. They are storming heaven's gates. In his pride, man thinks he can literally build his way to God. Now, how many ways do we still do that? If I'm just good enough, if I just go to church enough, if I just give enough, if I just go enough, if I just do enough. Friends, this is the epitome of pride. Later in the book of Genesis, God gives Jacob a dream about a ladder, about a ziggurat that connects heaven and earth. And when Jesus comes in John 1, verse 51, Jesus says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I, the Son of Man, am the ziggurat. I, Jesus, the Son of Man, I am the ladder. I am the way. I am the one. I am descending the stairs so that you can make your your way to God. You will never climb the stairs on your own. That's why I came. Jesus is the one who connects us to heaven. Friends, when we try to build our own way to God, we wage war on Jesus himself. When we think our good deeds will get us even one step closer to heaven, we are assaulting violently the gospel of grace. And if you look at verse 4, you see the motives behind the assault, why they wanted to do this, two reasons behind the attack. The first motive is reputation. In verse 4, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. They wanted people to go by the ziggurat, see the memorial on the front of the building, and say, wow, those people were exceptional. That's a great people. That that is a, a country that's worth living in. Whoever built that is amazing. These people, when they built this ziggurat, wanted the glory and the pride and the honor and the splendor. But Ezekiel 39, verse 25, God says, I will be jealous for my holy name. I'm not going to let anybody have that. You see another motive in verse 4. It's pure rejection. Look at carefully at the end of verse 4. They want to make a name for themselves, they say, lest so that we won't be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. These people don't just like cruise and unintentionally settle into the suburbs. They build so that they will not fill the earth. They settle with the direct intention and purpose so that they cannot fill God's command and mission to be fruitful. They are actively fighting God's call in their life. Friend, can I ask you a personal question? Have you seen either of these motives in your life? Is reputation driving the way you operate? How easy is that, whether you're in school, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're just in your neighborhood comparing yourselves to your neighbors? How many of us drive ourselves crazy living to make our name for ourselves. 
right? Maybe it's not reputation. Maybe it's pure rejection. Is there, is there a specific area in your life where you know God has specifically said, do this, and you are actively, intentionally going the other way? Friend, look at Babel. That is a battle you will not win. James 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friend, if the Lord is speaking into a situation in your life, humble yourself and receive this word meekly so that God can give grace to you. There's a second phase in the war. Man declares war, but then God answers back. Verse 5 to 8. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. December 7th, 1941. Japan unleashes a surprise attack on the Hawaiian Islands at Pearl Harbor. And a sleeping giant wakes up. The United States of America had been dragging their feet, not wanting to enter World War II. It wasn't in their best interests. But because of the bombing at Pearl Harbor, the giant comes to war. The United States enter into battle. Friends, the Tower of Babel is Pearl Harbor. And what God does makes Hiroshima and Nagasaki and those nuclear explosions pale in comparison because the effects of what God does in response to man's declaration of war is still felt today. And friends, I would tell you that we feel it every single day today. I want you to see what God does. First, God humbles man. In verse 5, Moses tells us, the Lord came down. Now let's be real clear. God doesn't need to go to the tower in order to see it. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all at once. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere. I mean, God, God is everywhere. He is also omniscient. David says, before I even speak a word, you know it. So God sees everything. God knows everything. He doesn't need to go anywhere. What is happening when Moses says the Lord came down? Moses is using human language to highlight how silly this is, how absurd it all is. Man thinks he can go as high as he can, and even at the, the apex of human achievement, the Lord comes down. The highest that everyone all in one place could attain, all working together, and God still looks down on it. 
Friends, if we would only hear this. In that search for reputation, we want to make a name for ourselves. What do we do? We build. We build our resumes. We build our portfolios. We build our networks. We build up our relationships so that we can lift ourselves higher and as great as we can. And then we look around at each other and we compare, how's my tower doing to somebody else's tower? All so that what? We can get our little name on an office door, maybe on a building, or in a history book. Friend, even if you get that far, even if you make a difference, even if you change the world, even if you become the president of the United States of America, at the end of the day, you will be nothing compared to the Most High God. And no matter how high you get, no matter how close to the heavens you get, when God looks at you, he's going to have to come down. Because as Isaiah chapter 6 says, he is high and lifted up. He is the most high God. And so after God humbles man with his decline, God confuses man. This is my favorite part. Look at verse 7. God says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that, I want to mess their language up, so that they may not understand one another's speech. I think of it like this. They're all working together to build this tower. And the foreman in charge is barking orders in Egyptian. But the man carrying the bricks to the pile, all of a sudden, speaks Swahili. And above, there's a guy hanging from a rope, and he drops a brick, and he shouts, look out below! But he's speaking French. And the guy below him, as the bricks are falling, he speaks Japanese. And as he collapses to the ground, and his head is bleeding all over the place, the foreman tries to call the medic, but the medic speaks Hindi. And everyone starts yelling at each other, and a riot breaks out because no one understands anything. And the next day, after all that mess, nobody goes back to work because they can't get their disability checks. They can't get insurance because the people who handle that, they speak Portuguese. So they're all done. The work is over. God's confused man. But God's not done yet. In verse 8, God scatters man. God kicks man out. Look at verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Don't think God is small, friend. The people at Babel won't do what God wants, and so God does it anyway. They won't fulfill his commands. They choose to go the other direction, so he fulfills the commands himself. He does what he wants to do. God accomplishes his plan in spite of man's disobedience. This scattering, friends, what happens in verse 8? You got to stick with me here. This scattering, when God accomplishes his own mission to fill the earth, this scattering, biblically, is where all our differences come from. 11 verse 1, all the earth had one language. 
all the earth had one neighborhood. All the earth lived in one place. And in verse 8, God said, go. And from this verse is where we have all nationalities, languages, and races, and ethnic groups, and differences, all coming from Babel. And just think of this. Because of this discipline and this scattering, all new kinds of sin emerged that had never existed before. Genocide, ethnic cleansing, prejudice, and racism, all of these evils find their roots in the pride of Babel. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that this is the wrath of God. Watch what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 24. Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, claiming they could build a tower to heaven. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up, scattered them in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Now, specifically, Paul is talking about a sexual sin that had shown up in the Roman church, but the principle is the same that happens in Genesis 11. Sin leads to more sin. The punishment for our pride and our sin is the experience of more increasing sin and pride. Could go a lot of ways with that, but I'm going to stick to this passage and ask him what I want you to think about this, friends. What exactly is the sin of prejudice and racism? At the core, it's pride. It's pride in your own self, in your own background, thinking that you're better. Thinking that you've reached a pinnacle. Thinking there's a superiority. Brothers and sisters, that's not just sinful. It's ironic. And it's foolish. The pride of that misses an important truth from Genesis chapter 11. Biblically, this isn't news to anybody, we all come from the same place. Genesis chapter 1, we all come from the garden. Genesis chapter 6 to 9, we all come off the boat. Genesis chapter 11, we're all scattered from Babel. We all have the same starting point. And yet, in the worst kind of irony, because we as people were punished for pride and scattered out, we have become proud about our differences after being scattered out. And we've never left the sin behind. 1 John 4 verse 21. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And all I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that we need humility, not pride. We need to see one another with the eyes of God 
we need to see one another as equal image bearers of our creator. Not because, hear me, not because it's nice, not because it's politically correct, but because it's biblical, because it's loving, because it's humble, and because we know that's not a fight, that we're going to win, because God wages war on our pride for the glory of his name. Now, to prove that, you have to see the last phase of the war, because it doesn't end when God responds. I want you to see the war after Babel. Look at verse 9 as our launching point. Moses writes, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful when you ask me if you want to play Monopoly on a Friday night. Be careful what you pray for. God has an ironic sense of humor. He may just give you what you ask. What does man want more than anything in this passage? They said, we want a name. We want people to remember our name. And guess what God gives them? A name. He gives them the name Babel, which in the original language sounds just like the word confused. So every time throughout history the name Babel is mentioned, at least in that language, people are going to think mixed up, messed up, confused. And so the rest of the Bible, Babylon, Babel represents the city that thinks it can fight God, but at the end of the day proves it's still just as confused as it ever was. It is a name that puts man in his place. And just like that, for all intents and purposes, the battle of Babel is over, but the war keeps going. Just look immediately what comes after. You get a family tree a genealogy in Genesis, a list of a bunch of sons that if you're reading through the Bible, you probably think about skipping. But then it leads to Genesis chapter 12. And the very next story that happens in the book of Genesis is God making the next move in the war on pride. God goes to an idolater, someone who worships other things, and he gives him a name and names him Abram. And he gives him a promise. Not because he built a tower, but because God wanted to. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation and make your name great. Do you see the contrast? All of humanity is working together to make a name for itself. God squashes that. Then you get this sinner. God grabs him and says, I'm going to build you a tower. Babel wants to make a name for itself through its achievements, but God comes to Abram by his grace. He wants to bless every nation, and you know, brothers and sisters, hopefully, that this happens through Abraham's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his life and work was a direct assault on our pride. It was the greatest battle ever fought in the war on pride. That's why Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, Being found in human form, Jesus 
humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of, God, because of Jesus' humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, this is the gospel. In our pride, we thought we were Babel and we could build a name for ourselves. We thought we could be impressive. We thought we could get God's approval by being good enough that we could be his favorite child. But we sinned against God. And in God's grace, he sent his son, Jesus, to be a perfect man, to obey every time, to do all the things that we could never do, and then to be killed by humanity, to be put on the cross naked and ashamed. And all of our sins, all of our pride was put on Jesus, and God the Father looked at him and saw our sin and our pride, and he crushed it. And three days later, he rose his son, Jesus Christ, up from the grave to start a new kingdom, a new nation, a new name, a new family. So that all who had the humility to recognize their own sin, their own attacks on God's honor, and turned away from that and put their trust not in what they could achieve, but in what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross for them. And if they would just believe in that and do nothing else, that God would save them. Friend, have you ever come to that point? Have you ever humbled yourself where you stopped depending on, on your achievements, on your talents, on whatever you could accomplish, and recognize that the only way you make it to heaven is through what Jesus Christ did for you? Friends, hear the word of God. James 4 verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friend, I can tell you that promise is true. Turn to Christ and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. But did you know that the cross wasn't the last battle in the war on pride? If you go to Acts chapter 2, Jesus starts the church by completely reversing the Tower of Babel. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit unites the church so that people who speak tons of different languages come together and all of a sudden through the Spirit speak one language. And the Holy Spirit takes the diversity that's there and unites them under the banner of Jesus. And the people in the church in the first century didn't get it. They were confused. In their pride, they didn't think people who were different than them could worship with them. That's what half the New Testament is about. The Holy Spirit unites us in Christ so that Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus is our peace because he has made both of us, Jews and Gentiles, one people. And you see it clearly when you go to the end of the Bible and you look at heaven. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 7, the wrath at Babel becomes the glory of heaven. And friends, if you struggle with this kind of area of pride and not associating with people who are different than you, I got bad news for you. You're going to hate heaven because it's not all a bunch of Southern Baptists and it's not all a bunch of people from Southwest Missouri. You're going to have a real struggle in heaven. We, it ain't going to all be Americans in heaven. You understand? They, listen, worship service won't be in English. It's going to be different. Let me show you. I ain't just making this up. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 to 10. This is what we're going to sing. 
Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Better start memorizing that song because you're going to sing it forever. Our song in heaven is a song of humility. We say, worthy are you, not me. Worthy is your name, not ours, because you were the one who died. You were the one who did it. And look, we're going to sing this song with people from every tribe, from every continent, from every nation, from every language. Every language that came out of Babel will be in heaven singing one song to Jesus. Now, listen, I'm going to connect some dots for you. I'm not done. How did Jesus teach us to pray? You know that prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Glory to your name, right? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's your prayer. I just showed you what heaven looks like. The prayer is that it happens here. Church today should look like the church tomorrow. Church now should look like church in eternity. And friends, for eternity, Christians will worship together with people who are different forever. If that's where we're going, if that's true, how does that change the way we live today? If nothing else, Show humility. Pursue the unified fellowship we will experience in eternity. Let me give you some verses. Colossians 3, verse 14. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do anything from conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. One day, Jesus is going to come back and set up that heaven so that we could sing that song, and he's going to finish the war of pride one day, once and for all. There will be no more battles. And friends, I'm here to tell you, it's a fight that we cannot win if we think we're going to fight against him in that war. How silly would it look if Jesus comes back that day and we are all here just trying to build our own little tower, still trying to make a name for ourselves, still thinking that that matters. Friends, may we as the people of God be found on that day humble, united under the banner of Jesus, living as if other people are more important than ourselves, and living for the glory of the king who's going to win. May we be found living for Christ on that day. Let's pray.